For a number of years, I was a scout leader. One of my favorite activities to do as a scout was to tie knots and to put knot theory to the test by building gigantic structures out of ropes and staves. The scouts would always have a lot of fun with this. We would often use these structures as launching pads for water balloon cannons. I was the uh, recipient of one of these balloons one evening. They are fun to launch, not quite so fun to be hit with them, but I digress. It was always amazing to me how some scouts would pay very close attention to our demonstration about how to tie stable knots, particularly ones that could bear weight, while some, shall we say, chose to do it their way. You can imagine the comedy when these knots were put to the test. Those that were stable held up incredibly well under weight and tension. But those that insisted on doing it their way would be frantically trying to, to tie more bad knots in order to try to hold off the inevitable collapse of their structures as weight was put on them. Now, why am I talking about knots? Because it is a fitting illustration to both an observation and an exhortation that I have. The observation is this. Those that pay close attention to the Bible and develop a stable set of beliefs about who God is and who they are, they tend to navigate personal tragedy through lament well. And those that do not have a stable set of beliefs or derive their set of beliefs purely from their own experience tend to falter. And unfortunately, they don't falter in elegant ways. They seek desperately to add rider beliefs, causing much anguish, much depression, and anxiety as they seek to shore up and reconcile their core beliefs when they are inherently unstable. And eventually their belief structures must either reform or they collapse altogether. The exhortation is this. Come to a stable and consistent understanding of who God is and who you are from the Bible before personal tragedy or some other major life event challenges you. You see, suffering and evil are inevitable. And the sooner you can arrive at a stable set of beliefs, the better you will be to weather the storms of life. The sooner you can come to a stable set of beliefs, the sooner you will be able to avail yourself of the means of grace that God provides for us to navigate through our suffering and our tragedies. Lament, as we have been studying is one of these means. Fundamental to the practice of lament, that is, navigating through suffering in trusting prayer, is the underlying assumption that the God who hears your lament is holy, he is sovereign, he is faithful, he is just, and he is trustworthy. And it is because he is these things that we can turn to him in lament. One author put it this way, it's precisely out of trust that God is sovereign, that the psalmist repeatedly bring laments and petitions to the Lord. If the psalmist had already decided the verdict that God is indeed unfaithful, 
they would not continue to offer their complaint. This morning, as we tie up our study in Lamentations, my aim is less to show you how to lament. We've studied much of that in our last few weeks together. Rather, it is to walk back through the book of Lamentations and highlight precisely these stabilizing beliefs that grounded the author as he wrote it. So let's dive in. Stabilizing belief number one. God is holy. We can find stability in our suffering because God is holy and we are not. In Lamentations 1, we arrived upon the scene of Jerusalem's destruction and devastation as she is brought into exile by the, by the evil Babylonian war machine. The author describes in vivid personified detail about the condition of Judah. Recall that the writer says this, Like a widow has she become, she who was great among the nations, a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. Though the author acknowledges Judah's foes in chapter 1, verse 5, he does not acknowledge the enemy as the reason for their affliction. Rather, as we read, we sense instead the suffering as in the aftermath of sin. Chapter 1, verse 8, Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she has become filthy. Verse 9, her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. In this gut-wrenching scene, we hear the pleas of the author who acknowledges the, the holiness and the righteousness of God. Chapter 1, verse 18, The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. We saw in Lamentations 4 how the people of Judah had idolized the gifts of God and failed to acknowledge the giver. Gold, leaders, prophets, all had been elevated and set apart to the status of idols. Setting anything apart as holy when God alone is holy is always a bad idea. And likewise, we see in our, in our world, against the backdrop of a holy God, we all fall short of his glory, Romans 3.23. We too have sinned grievously, idolized our possessions, our leaders, even the good gifts that God gives. Yet convicting as God's holiness is to us, it also brings stability. Because God alone is set apart and not like us, because he alone is righteous, because his standard of righteousness is objective, God's holiness is the anchor by which we must categorize our suffering. It is because of God's holiness that we know that suffering and evil is a result of sin in a fallen world. And that, perhaps, perhaps ironically, is stabilizing. I mean, simply imagine for a second if God did not exist or God were not set apart, and then suffering would be meaningless. Or worse yet, there would be no hope of remedy. Stabilizing belief number Two, God is sovereign. 
God is sovereign. We can find stability in our suffering because God is sovereign. And he works all things according to the counsel of his will. In Lamentations 2, we see that the hand behind Jerusalem's destruction is not Babylon. Rather, it is the Lord's own hand that is ultimately orchestrating the destruction of Jerusalem. Recall in chapter 2, verse 1, how the Lord in his anger set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. Verse 2, the Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations. Verse 5, the Lord has become like an enemy. Verse 7, the Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. Verse 8, the Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. The author makes no attempt to conceal who is actually in control. Though Babylon is the means, God is the one who is sovereign. And this can be incredibly troubling. You see, Babylon was no friend of God's. She was the enemy of God's chosen people. We read in Lamentations 5 the incredible evil acts of the oppressors, of rape, of violence, of trauma. And yet, despite Babylon's evil intent, God used her to accomplish his good purpose, namely to discipline his people. Why is that a stabilizing belief, might you ask? Because God's reign is objectively sovereign. You see, God is not sovereign because he just happens to be the superpower of the day. He's not sovereign because people have elected him to be sovereign, nor is he sovereign by election fraud. He is sovereign because he is God, and thus what he purposes, he carries out. There is no power nor kingdom above God. Lamentations 2.17, the Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word. Ephesians 1.11 says that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. He is not fickle, nor is his sovereignty ever diminished because of our choices. And it is because of this that the author of Lamentations can turn to this same God, who afflicted Jerusalem and appealed to him in Lamentations 5.19. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. You see, the sovereignty of God is an anchor amidst our suffering because he is the only one that actually has the power to do something about it. But the sovereignty of God can feel terrifying, too. I mean, we all know the perils of unchecked power, and that might be true, except for this next stabilizing belief. Stabilizing belief number three. God is just, and God is good. God is just, and he is good. We can find stability amidst our suffering because God is just and he is good. His intentions are pure. Lamentations taught us that because of the holiness of God, sin must be punished. But God is not an 
arbitrary God. He is a just God. Here's part of chapter 1, verse 18 again. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. It's because God is just that the author can likewise make his appeal in chapter 3, verse 59. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. We can find stability amidst our suffering because we can be sure that God will be just in his judgments, even as he is sovereign. But God is not only just in a robotic sense. He's also good. His intentions are, are pure. Recall Lamentations 3, verses 31 through 33. The Lord will not cast off forever, but though he caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Similarly, we find in Hebrews 12, verses 7 through 8, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Now, it's important that we take a short aside to clarify. Because discipline can have this connotation of punishment. One can get the wrong impression that suffering is always divine punishment for personal sin. Certainly that was the case for those in Jerusalem, and in a greater sense, it is the fate of those who ultimately reject Christ. But for Christians, we will never face divine punishment because God in his justice and his goodness took on the punishment for sin at the cross of Jesus Christ. The heart toward his people is not to afflict, but to demonstrate his steadfast love and mercy. But discipline can also mean training, as in training up a child of God. And in this sense, God does use the suffering that results from sin, whether ours or others, to train us in the obedience of faith and in Christ-likeness. Much of my suffering growing up was the result of living in a dysfunctional family marred by much parental sin and conflict. And yet God in his goodness used the occasion of my tumultuous family life, my family upbringing, to sharpen my faith and grow me in compassion and mercy. I would not be the man I am today apart from what God has done in me through suffering. As a child of God, one who has come to faith in Jesus, God's sovereignty, his justice, and goodness means that suffering, while painful, 
will always be used for our good as a father trains up his sons. Jesus is the prototypical example of this. Though he did not sin, he suffered. Though he suffered, he always walked in obedience to the Father and did not sin. Though he suffered to the uttermost as a consequence of our sin, he knew God would use it for good, saving us to the utmost. And that is incredibly stabilizing. We don't lament with a hopeless why, even as we seek to reconcile our pain amidst these truths. We lament to a God who is holy, who is sovereign, who is just, and who has the power to use even the evil intentions of man to bring about ultimate good. Stabilizing belief number four. God is trustworthy. He keeps his promises. God is trustworthy. He keeps his promises. We can find stability amidst our suffering because God keeps his promises. He is trustworthy. One of the ways that we have seen this throughout Lamentations is that God promised that he would judge the sins of the people if they should continue to forsake him. We are reminded in chapter 2, verse 17, he has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. That's a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 15 through 28. Obviously, I won't read the whole thing, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, it says, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Verse 25, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. And we see that's exactly what happened. But the same attribute of God is also found in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We find this reminder throughout the Bible, including Malachi 3.6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. You see, the author of Lamentations also knew the promises that God had made to Noah, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. In reference to Noah, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. In reference to Abraham, that he would make him a father of many nations. And to Isaac, the promise of land, of offspring, and to blessing. And to Jacob, that God's chosen people would come from his family line. The author of Lamentations was able to appeal to the faithfulness and the trustworthiness of God because he knew that God keeps his promises both in bringing about the curse of Jerusalem and perhaps one day in restoring her. But there's one more promise that I think the author of Lamentations knew, and that is the promise of the Messiah that was to come through the line of Jacob. How might that happen if God's people were to be obliterated, were to be destroyed? The trustworthiness of God, the promise-keeping God, is a steady anchor in times of trouble because he is unshifting and because his promises are true. 
Which brings us to the fifth and final stabilizing belief. God came as Jesus Christ. God came as Jesus Christ. We can find stability amidst our suffering because God is the suffering God in Jesus Christ. We find our stability most at the cross. And here, brothers and sisters, is where it all comes together. Now, of course, we can write book-length treatments about this topic alone, but might I just highlight a few points. Earlier, I said that because of God's holiness, we know that suffering is a result of sin in a fallen world. It also means that unending evil and suffering are inevitable unless some provision is made to right the fallen world and to rid the world of sin. But our feeble attempts at doing so inevitably fall short. Sinners cannot rid themselves of sin. Even the most powerful, benevolent leader, political leader, he's not sovereign or she's not sovereign over all peoples. Only a sovereign act of God can solve our problem. And yet God is also just and good, like we talked about. Sin must be punished. And so how might sin be atoned? The answer, of course, comes in the promised Messiah Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, 6-8 sums up what happened. Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know, sometimes I think we read that and miss the intense suffering and contrast that that actually entailed. God not only humbled himself to become a man to take on the sin of the world. He suffered the ultimate evil. To murder the Son of God and to crucify him on one of the cruelest forms of execution is a suffering that has cosmic proportions. It's the ultimate act of evil. And yet, God says that even in this, he is sovereign. Acts 2.23. In Acts 2.23, Peter emphatically states this as he preaches. He says this, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see, the cross stands as the ultimate, the ultimate anchor point the Christian. For in the cross, we see the holiness of God. We see the sovereignty of God. We see the justice of God, the goodness and the love of God, the trustworthiness of God, and the covenant-keeping promises of God. In the cross, God used the ultimate act of evil to bring about 
the ultimate act of good. In the cross, God has brought freedom and deliverance for his people that even in death, that even death, rather, might not hold us back from the love and the fellowship of God. In the cross, we know that God cannot remain exceedingly angry with us. Romans 8, 31 through 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And then later on, Paul says in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, I am not a stoicist. I know that suffering is hard. It's painful. We live in a sin-saturated evil world. And as your fellow brother, I have walked alongside many of you for many, many years. I know the suffering that you have endured. I have walked alongside you as you've endured the pain of losing a loved one, of miscarriages, of stillborn children, of wondering whether you are loved, whether you are good enough of painful and messy reconciliation between family members, of strokes, of cancer, of epileptic seizures, of concussions, of rehabilitations, of fraud, of money issues, depression, of pastoral transitions, of losing one's voice, of surgery, of bike injuries, of having to deal with the aftermath of another sin, of caring for foster children, of job woes, of COVID, of disappointments, and many, many others. But I also know that the God who has allowed these things to happen is the same God that the author of Lamentations trusted. He is the same God that the psalmist trusted. And most of all, he is the same God who suffered alongside us and gave us the cross. He is worthy to be trusted. So bring him your laments. He is worthy to be trusted. So bring him your laments. Our actions flowing out of our hearts will always betray what we truly believe. While it is good to feel these things and to process our painful feelings as we suffer, let us not be a people who act out of our feelings nor shape our beliefs based on our feelings. Just a little side note, have you ever noticed how contemporary cultural language has shifted from I believe we should do such and such to even I think we should do such and such to what we hear most of all now, I feel like we should do such and such? No, no, we are Christians, little Christs. Let us be a people who live in the obedience of faith. In the book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, author Mark 
Rogop makes the point that lament is inherently Christian. To cry is human, he says, but to lament is Christian. Lament is that place we come to when we seek to reconcile the pain with who God is. It's a journey. It is a journey, but it is a journey that begins with trust and ends with trust. It is a journey that begins with trust and leads to trust. Do you know what you really believe? When your faith is tested through the storms of life, when life forces you to bend and when the tensions abound, will you be caught in a bind and lash out or will your knots hold strong? As John Piper once reportedly said, keep on trusting the one who keeps you trusting. Keep on trusting the one who keeps you trusting. Would you pray with me? Father, indeed, we are grateful that you are holy, that you are sovereign, that you are just, that you are good, that you are loving, and that you are trustworthy and you keep your promises. Most of all, we are grateful that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for us, that this problem of sin and suffering might once for all be dealt with. Father, I pray that even amidst suffering, both light suffering and dark suffering, that you would give us the faith to trust you, that you would help us to have stable beliefs, that we might walk in the obedience of faith and in Christ-likeness. Would you keep us trusting you, you who keeps us trusting. In Jesus' name, amen.